their prairies look beautiful because they graze them, but only at the right season, and they graze them intensely, and then they leave them alone. Welcome to the 258th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Conservationists talk a lot about how sometimes more charismatic species, such as polar bears and bald eagles, overshadow just how critical unsung critters like dung beetles are to overall ecological health. It's become clear that prairies suffer from a similar inferiority complex. While speeding past a tall grass prairie at 65 miles an hour, all you're likely to take in is a sea of uniform-looking grass. You might even be driving past that prairie as you make your way to what's considered more scenic country, like the big woods of northern Minnesota or the mountains out west. But if you take the time to wade into a prairie on a July day, prepare yourself for a biodiversity bonanza. Besides dozens of forb and grass species, there are innumerable insects utilizing this habitat. And don't even get me started on the grassland songbirds like bobolinks, dick thistles, and meadowlarks that make these places home. The great thing about prairies is that from spring into late fall, there's always something different going on. To be sure, that's just the biodiversity we can see. Below ground is a riot of biological activity taking place amongst the deep roots of all those plants. I was reminded of a prairie's ecological energy during a recent bioblitz held at Lacoparo State Park in western Minnesota. A bioblitz is an intense, community-based period of biological surveying that attempts to record as many living species as possible in a designated area. Groups of scientists, naturalists, and volunteers conduct this survey over a specific period of time. This year's bioblitz, which was sponsored by the Land Stewardship Project, Clean Up the River Environment, University of Minnesota Extension, and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, focused on the tall grass prairie habitat present at the state park and surrounding areas. During the day-long event, which was held in July, dozens of people from the community participated in tabulating the quantity and quality of pollinators, birds, moss, bats, reptiles, mammals, mussels and snails, and of course, prairie plants. There were also workshops held during the day on topics like how to restore prairie to backyards and farm fields. During one of the surveys, I tagged along with a group led by Margaret Kuchenreiter, an associate professor of biology at the University of Minnesota Morris, who is an expert on prairie ecology and management. I didn't even come close to learning all the names of the plants and insects Margaret pointed out, but the short walk was a striking example of how appearances can be deceiving. Even during a drought year like 2021, the State Park's Prairie was a hurly-burly of plant and animal activity. I talked to Margaret afterwards about the key role our fast-disappearing prairies can play in overall ecological health and how this example of what writer Bill Holm calls horizontal grandeur is often overshadowed by mountains and forests. She also described the role working conservation practices like managed rotational grazing can play in maintaining healthy prairie habitat. Margaret started out by describing just what we've lost over the past century and a half and how the fertility of the prairies, in a way, makes them their own worst enemy. If you think about Minnesota, about the western third of the state was originally prairie. Although there is prairie that's scattered farther to the east, all the way up to the goat prairies that are along the bluffs in the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers. But this whole part of the state originally was prairie. And it would have been originally about 18 million acres. 
And now we're down, according to the Minnesota Biological Survey, to about 1% of that that's left. So not very many acres. And then it's also important to realize, I think, that there are different um, prairie communities. So there are prairie communities that live where it's really, really wet. There are prairie communities that live on what we call mesic soils. So those are kind of the deep black soils that are moist. And then there are prairies that live in really dry situations. And so at least in the areas that I work, the only places that you can find prairie really are in where it's too wet or too dry and rocky to plow or along railroad rights of way. In fact, on the map that the DNR has of remnant prairies, you can see the railroad rights of way in the western part of the state because there's a little bit of prairie along there. The bluffs uh, over the Minnesota River have some prairie left and the Glacial Lake Agassiz beach ridges has quite a lot left. But all of the stuff that we see filled with corn and soybeans and to some extent wheat and sugar beets all used to be that deep soil, mesic, black soil prairie that was the quintessential tall grass prairie. In some ways it's its own worst enemy because it created such rich soil that it was the first stuff to be plowed. Right, I mean it was a formidable adversary to begin with because the roots of those prairie grasses went feet into the ground but that means that their decomposition left lots of organic matter but you know you hear the the stories about the first Europeans to break the prairie with their plows and the prairie grasses roots would sing almost as they snapped with the prairie the plow being pulled through them so you know until they invented the the John Deere steel plow it was really the prairie wasn't going to give way easily yeah but now we don't have much of that really mesic prairie left in the state at all. On the tour, on the survey that we did this morning here during the BioBlitz, I'm always struck by this. I know it, but I'm always reminded when I get out in there how diverse that is. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, and we're in the middle of a drought here, so stuff, you know, maybe it's not thriving, but you still get down in there and that stuff, you know, the deep-rooted systems, it's really a very diverse biome out there. It is. It's diverse in terms of plants. There are hundreds of species of flowering plants that live in the prairie. Of course, it's dominated by grasses. So if you're whizzing by at 55 or 65 miles an hour, a lot of the time it just looks like any, any tame pasture. It's just green. Maybe you see a few specks of color and you don't really think much of it. And people, you know, when they think about the majesty of... Minnesota, they typically think about the North Shore, the big woods up north, or, you know, sometimes people are only thinking about the Rocky Mountains or the ocean. But the prairie, to me, um, Bill, Bill Holm, I think, talked about it as horizontal grandeur, and that there's something that he called the prairie eye, where the openness of the prairie, the getting into it so that well, some of my research, I used to sit on this hillside at Glacial Lake State Park, and, and the prairie grasses would be just about eye level. Mm. And so in the middle of July, when it's at least when we get some rain, you know, I would be able to see 25 or 30 species of blooming plants, all from where I was sitting in one spot. Um, you know, maybe six species of grasses and a whole bunch of sunflower species, blazing star, echinacea, um, you know, all kinds of plants that 
most people have never seen before because they haven't taken the time to go out and and really experience being in the prairie. And then I guess it's important to say that those prairie plants then also support remarkable diversity of insect species. So we were out today and saw these really beautiful iridescent green dog bane beetles. We saw monarch butterflies. We saw, you know, all kinds of things out there, grasshoppers and many species uh, and of bees, especially, that depend upon those species. And then, of course, there are grassland birds that depend on the prairie. There are mammals like um, badgers and things like that that depend on the prairie. All kinds of uh, specialized snakes that, you know, and other reptiles, skinks, that depend on the prairie. So I specialize on plants, but they support a huge diversity of species that most people never see because they won't go see a prairie. One of the things we're losing when we lose that prairie is obviously wildlife habitat. But what else are we losing? Ecologists refer to the things that nature gives us as ecosystem services. So certainly wildlife habitat and for people who like to pheasant hunt or bird watch, you know, there are lots of services that way. But if we think about prairie soils and how deep rooted those plants are, they're doing two really important things for us. One is carbon sequestration. Plants, as we know, draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. They put it in their bodies to make their bodies. Those bodies feed the animals in the prairie. But a lot of that, what we call biomass, the plant body, dies at the end of the growing season. And so the above ground portions of the plant plus the roots of the plant then work to, to build soil. And that soil then has lots of organic matter in it, and organic matter, by definition, contains carbon. Mm. So having good, healthy prairies is going to be part of the key to diminishing uh, climate change. And then, of course, um, we also have to think about clean water, because when we get especially heavy rainfall events, if they fall on plowed fields, a lot of the time that rainwater will just sweep away the topsoil and it'll go into the river. It will diminish the quality of the soil available in that field. But prairies are really tight communities that hold water. The water can percolate down into the deep root zone of the prairie really, really easily. And so they clean water by filtration. They help prevent flooding because they slow down runoff. And so those are two really hugely powerful ecosystem services. Then of course, originally, we talked about this before, the idea that those deep roots built the topsoil that we're now, you could almost say, mining mm -hmm. through industrial agriculture today. And you were talking about water. That uh, <clears throat> strikes me about something I observed. I went, one of the surveys I went on was with dragonflies. We had very little luck. One of the entomologists that was on that survey said, well, this is an indicator we were down near water. They rely on a water-type habitat. And he said, this is an indicator that the, even though we got water here, it's maybe not the best quality. And then right above that is we do see soybean fields, you know, all around here. So that there's that connection there of it's not, it may be some things you don't think of that are really connected to the health of that prairie. No, that's definitely true. Actually, one of my colleagues at the University of Minnesota Morris, who's here today also, she's an aquatic entomologist, and so she works on the insects that live especially in prairie streams. Mm. And she's done a lot of habitat surveys, and definitely there are 
like for example, damselfly, or I, I should say mayfly species that collect particles out of the water. There are other ones that spin webs. There are ones that make little cases and or little, yeah, little webs. They don't make the cases. Caddisflies make cases. But those insects depend on the quality of the water that they live in. So for example, if there's too much silt in the water, a lot of times it'll cover up the rocks and gravels that those insects like to live in and basically smother them or cut off their food supply, interfere with their ability to reproduce. And so they're kind of like the canaries in the coal mine of our prairie streams, that if we have really clean, robust streams, we have diverse aquatic insect faunas like dragonflies, like mayflies. You can't really appreciate stuff like this unless you know more about it. And I guess is that one way we can kind of tackle this issue of figuring out what we're going to do management-wise, public policy-wise, and that kind of thing to help protect some of the remnant prairie, but also try to figure out ways we can bring back some of that restored prairie. Yes, um, that's definitely true. So I think for someone who's never really gone to a prairie before, I would definitely invite you out to our part of the state. Places like Glacial Lake State Park, Lock Parle State Park, Blue Mound State Park, lots and lots of prairies. There are also good scientific and natural areas out here that have beautiful examples of native prairie. And the best time to come maybe is sometime between about June and the middle of August, I guess, um, in a year that's not quite this dry. So first, getting out into a native prairie. The next best thing would be a prairie restoration, and lots of places are restoring prairie now, especially with an eye to pollinator conservation, because prairie forbs, those are the pretty wildflowers of the prairie, uh, support a remarkable number of native pollinators of butterflies and bees and all kinds of other things that we want to support to have a healthy ecosystem. Um, so I would recommend people do that. And then also, there are quite a few nurseries around our state that actually have native plants that can be incorporated into people's home landscapes. And so even if you have just a few blazing stars or um, butterfly milkweeds, you know, they can add pollinator habitat to your yard. They can add beauty to your landscape. And so there are lots of ways that people can engage with the prairie flora and fauna. It's quite clear that industrial agriculture and the plowing, the original plowing of the prairie was just decimating for that habitat. Are you seeing any examples of how agriculture can kind of help work with the prairie to bring that system back? Or is, have you seen anything from your point of view? Yes, absolutely. So I will call out um, some farmers named Laverne and Mary Jo Forbord, who uh, farm in Pope County. They raise, they were an, uh, an industrial grade dairy operation at one point and decided that that really wasn't paying for them. They were working too hard and not making enough money. So they switched over to um, organic pasture-fed beef. And they have, their farm is beautiful. It has quite a few hillsides that have native prairie. They've also established a bunch of restorations on their land. Mm -hmm. And then they also have cool season pasture. And they do uh, rotational grazing with a, um, well, they have cows and calves and also steers. And they market direct to consumer. But their, their prairies look beautiful because they graze them, but only at the right season. 
and they graze them intensely and then they leave them alone. So I think, again, knowing and understanding prairie, when it should be grazed, how it should be grazed, can really help us with what's called a working lands kind of approach so that we can take the highly erodible hillsides especially, restore those to native species, and then use them to support grass-fed agriculture. So, you know, a lot of times I think beef get, gets a really bad name because it's so highly contributes to climate change because of methane and then also all the, the greenhouse gases associated with the feedstocks that gets fed to feedlot beef. But I think we haven't really done enough to think about the, the situation of grazing mm-hmm. on native prairie and how that could potentially sequester carbon as well as provide a source of the protein that people like to really have in their diets. So I think we need to think about converting uh, marginal, either too wet or too dry, too rocky, too hilly, erodible lands back into native vegetation and then use those to link up the native prairies that still exist so that we can have a landscape that supports all of the organisms that should be part of this beautiful prairie puzzle, humans as well as native flora and fauna. Professor Kuchenreiter feels regenerative ag practices like managed rotation of grazing can be a benefit to natural habitat. It turns out federal and state natural resource agencies, along with private environmental groups like the Nature Conservancy, are currently engaging the services of livestock farmers to maintain prairie habitat in refuges and other natural areas. One of the other BioBlitz participants was Brian Christensen, who, before retiring, was a soil scientist with the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service for over 30 years. Brian described to me how he's witnessed firsthand the benefits of utilizing livestock to maintain habitat in the community. In this case, a farmer was using flash rotational grazing on a waterfowl production area maintained by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I live in Slayton, Minnesota, and there's a waterfowl production area just south of town. And they've been grazing that, I believe this is the fifth year now. And they've rotated that across across two areas on that management area. So the first year I was very interested to see how that would look. And um, I was actually very pleased. It looked really nice after they had pulled the cattle off. They kind of flash grazed it. They'd bring a heavy stocking rate on and only leave it on for 30 days or some short period. So after they removed the cattle, there was still a lot of vegetation there. Um, You want to leave half and take half. And I'd watch that as the summer would progress. And in August, you would never know they had ever grazed that before. It just, everything was beautiful. Weed free, the grasses were flowing, there were forbs, very nice. And they, they grazed the same areas three years in a row. I did notice there was a little bit more annual weed coming in, like the second and third year, but still after grazing and into August, you would still never know that there would ever been a hoof on there. Mm. And one thing I did notice was when I'd walk that, it seemed like early in the season, there'd be more birds, more clutches of pheasants in the area that they had that was grazed already. This particular area is actually an old lake bottom. Mm. Um, The vegetation out there is mixed tall grass natives, predominantly big blue stem. There's Indian grass, some switchgrass, some of your cool season grasses like uh, Canada Wild Rye and 
So it's a mix of grasses and forbs. A lot of wetland plants that regenerated naturally. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had bids out for producers and they would put in a bid and whoever was awarded that bid, then they got the land for grazing. What do you think? Is this seen what you've seen just in the last couple of years? Do you think there's potential for this this more kind of blending that working lands conservation idea in with livestock impact, that kind of thing? Yes, I think it's a really great idea. It's There's supplemental feed for the cattle producers, so that's a win situation for them. Plus, we need to replicate the bison back before pre-settlement. we got to have those hoofs on the land for disturbance and removal of that excess vegetation. So that's another way to help maintain and restore that prairie. It's, it's a win-win for everybody on that. And this particular piece of land is pretty marginal. So having it into some kind of grazing system or something managed for wildlife is what it should be managed for. Margaret Kugenreiter mentioned Mary Jo and Laverne Forbord as examples of farmers who have converted cropland to prairie habitat and are adding economic value to that habitat via managed rotational grazing. On Ear to the Ground episode number 105, the Forbords talked about this process of transitioning crop acres to natural grasslands. Check out that link as well as other prairie-related shows on the podcast page for episode 258 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.